My name is William. I'm one of the elders here at the Mountain Church, and I have the privilege of preaching over this passage today. Um, one thing I do want to say is I want to thank Ben and, and Daniel for stepping up and leading music and giving me a little bit of a break today. I really appreciate that, and them using their gifts to bless this congregation. And um, we'll see today that this is a um, big call in our lives to use our gifts to honor God and uh, help the body. The one thing I want to say before we get started with Judges 15 is many of you guys have seen that we have been on a, as we have called it many times, a downward spiral, right? Judges has really painted a picture that humanity is really tanking. And so as we get to Judges 15, I want to be transparent in what I talk about here. So I'm going to open up a little bit to you guys as I get prepared to enter into God's word that I'm going to say when I got ready to preach this passage, the first thing I wanted to say was, just go back and listen to what Daniel said last week, because that's essentially what happened this week. So it's really, we see that there's not a lot new that happens here. As we just heard, as Peter read, Samson is not getting any better. There's really no redemption that happens in this piece of scripture, right? We really see that there's like this level of depravity still happening, God working in spite of Samson, right? That's that same message that Daniel preached last week is ever true this week. So I could have gotten up here and just changed some of the verses, but continued with the same themes, continued with the same stuff. But I want to try and pull out a little bit more out of Judges 15. So what we're going to do is as we've gone through Judges, if you haven't been with us, is we have been answering three questions at the end of each passage. We've been going through and we've been asking, or asking three questions and answering three questions. The first one being, what does this story uh, tell us about how God relates to his people? Like, what is a characteristic of God that we see in this story? So that's the first one we're going to try and answer. The second one is, how does this fit into the larger story of the Bible, the meta-narrative? Right? So how can we use this story to connect to the larger themes of the Bible? And then the third question being, what exhortation or admonition does this story have? So like, is there a warning? Is there something that it's calling us to? Who should we be as believers in response to the story that we are hearing? So we're going to answer those three questions as we dive into this. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to dive into the text and just kind of look at a couple of the things that happen in this story. So if you will, if you have your Bible, can you please be where Peter uh, had us get to this morning, which is Judges uh, 15, page 328 in my Bible. I don't know where you guys are at. 321, see you somewhere around there. All right, so let's go ahead and dive into this. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. So Hopefully we understand he went down with a goat. This was kind of like a, uh, uh, what would have been used for like an offering. This is not the same as bringing diamond rings to your, or earrings to like your girlfriend or your wife, right? It wasn't to buy affection or anything. It was just a symbol of peace. So it was, that's why he brought this down. Okay, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but the father would not allow him to go. So her, and her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her, to your companion. Now, one thing I want you guys to understand, utterly hated, that phrase could be translated as you divorced her. Okay? So I want you to understand. It wasn't that he was just like, oh, you don't like her, so I gave her away. It was literally like that phrase could be translated as divorced. So in, in, his, fa- in his father-in-law's eyes, we'll put father-in-law in quotes, right? In her father's eyes, 
she th- or he thought that she was divorced, so this is why he was acting the way he acted, okay? So then he says, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Now, I think it's really interesting to point out here, this is a weird response from Samson, What has Samson been doing this whole time? Whatever seems right in his eyes, right? This is, he's he's just like, he's a microcosm of what Israel has been doing. He's been doing what's ever right in his time. Now, the one thing I can tell you in the Philistine culture and in the culture of uh, what was going on in that time, to be offered the younger, prettier daughter, if Samson was really doing what was like good in his own eyes, he probably would have said what? Yeah, awesome, Right? I don't know what was going on, but that's, that's what he's... So where we start to see a little conundrum here is Samson, Samson is not behaving in his normal behavior. So this is where I'm going to stop the story, and I'm going to enter into a little uh, 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 spiel to you guys. And I said I want to I show you guys where I'm at when I preach this story. So one thing that I want to be clear on is I understand that when I get to look at Jesus and I see God on that day where I am judged... I'm going to be judged for what I taught. That's one of the things that I have to wear and that I take seriously. Now, one thing I want to say is that there are two very differing opinions on what happens in this story. And this is the marker where they start to split. So one opinion, which is I think where probably most of us, when we heard this story as Peter read it or if we've read it before, we really see the the depravity of where Samson goes, right? There are some crazy things that he does. But there's another road where people go down and they use kind of this as the road marker where they say, it's really interesting that Samson doesn't do what would be like the beneficial thing for him at this time, which is to take another wife. He stands solid and he says, no, I have a wife. That's who I want. And so now you get this little like picture. I hope you guys are starting to see that now there's one group of people who say Samson is actually acting in like an honoring way of his wife, which would be what God would call him to do. And he's not chasing after the things of this world, which then if you look at it that way, it really paints Samson in a really good light for the rest of this story. Because then Samson now believes that there has to be justice. There has to be some sort of retribution for what happened. This is not okay, and we need to live out of that. Now, I'm going to tell you guys, it's a compelling argument. When I read some commentaries that went through that, I go, wow, I get that. But then there's also the other side, though, that just says, Samson, when he declined that, he may have just been arrogant. Nope, I made up my mind. This is what I want. And if you're going to tell me no, now I'm going to do whatever I want even more so. So as you see, there's like a paradigm here of like looking at this both ways. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to straddle the fence. I'm going to be honest with you guys, because what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to look at God's word and draw a hard line based upon my opinion. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let God's word speak for itself. And we're going to look at what we see in the text and we're going to go with what we see in the text And we're going to pull out what we can learn from that 
without trying to draw our own desires or our own things. Like, I want Samson to be this great hero, so I'm going to paint him in this light. Or I really want Samson to look bad, so I feel better about myself, so I'm going to make him look awful. I'm not going to do that. So I hope when you guys hear what, what I preach on today, I hope you hear my heart in this, that I am not trying to dodge a bullet here or not offend people or do any of that kind of stuff. What I'm trying to do is I'm going to try to honor God's word for what it truly is. This story is not talked about elsewhere in the Bible. There's no way to compare it. Neither of those two narratives are contrary to what it teaches us about who God is and his character. None of, neither of those sides would contradict what happens in here. So when that comes into play, what I have to say is that both of those might be valid, and I can't wait to ask God when I'm in heaven. <laughs> and then the best part is, is I probably won't care. So when I get down to it, you know, I'm probably just going to be right where I am, right? Same question we ask about what happened to dinosaurs, right? So here we go. So, but what we do see here is in verse three, Samson said, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So we see that he knows that there should be justice for what happened, okay? So that's what we talked about. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put torches between each pair of tails. Nobody else find that ridiculous? Okay, thank you. Um, What's crazy, though, and what I think is awesome is that in history, there's other stories of this. In the Roman times, there were stories of people doing this kind of thing. So what's awesome is that we can look back and say how crazy this was. Years later, hundreds of years later, they were still doing this. Like, this was like a tactic that people used. So whether they got it from here and thought, wow, that's really good, like we could use that, right? Um, let's go. And then what's interesting here is verse 5 says, and he set fire to the torches and he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Okay, so Samson had a plan of attack here, right? He knew exactly what he was doing. Now, hopefully we understand Samson had a Nazarite vow. He was supposed to be a man of God, right? He should have known what some things were. I want you guys, I want us to get in practice doing this. You guys, can you turn back to Exodus 22 with me? Exodus 22. It's the second book of your Bible, page 94. No, I'm wrong. Not page 94. 102? Okay. <laughs> All right. Are you guys in uh, Exodus 22? Look at verse 5. So we're talking about laws about restitution. Verse 5. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lest his beasts, lest, lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own fields and in his own vineyards. So what did Samson do? He let a beast wild in a field and it burned the field. And he said that he was what? Justified for doing it. What does the Mosaic law tell us? Was he justified in doing that? No, because he has to pay restitution. Do you think Samson was thinking about that at all? No. No. So this is where I start to lean down towards that side of going like, okay, Samson might have had like good intentions of keeping his wife, but he's sure not going about it correctly, right? He burned the fields. And he knows or should know if he's been taught any sort of law, which my guess is that there was probably some sort of teaching that went on that he knew, he would know that that was something that was not okay to be doing. But he went ahead and did it anyways. 
Now, moving on. So he retaliates. So the first thing we have is Samson, uh, he comes back after time. His wife is given away to somebody else, right? So, his, so that's the first act. So we see his act of retaliation was to burn their fields. So the Philistines say, who has done this? And they say, Samson. Now, here's a key phrase that I think is really interesting. What do they say? The son-in-law of the Timnite. So what do they imply? Yeah, he's still married. He's still married. So the father-in-law has this crazy idea. You divorced her. You left. You went away. That's what we learned last week, right? That when he got mad, when he was angry, he stormed out of there, right? Now we get this idea that some, some of the other people, some, even the Philistines go, well, he's actually still married. That's his, that's his father-in-law. I gave away his wife. And they said, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. This is grim. Pagan religion, though, this was what they decided to do. They burned her. And they burned the, the husband. Okay, one act led to an act of revenge, right? Which now led to another act of what? Revenge, retaliation, okay? So now we're going to try and do something else. We're going to burn the wife and we're going to burn the father. Now that hopefully will take care of it, right? Hopefully that's, everything's been paid off. I think we're good. But now Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. So, Samson now says that what has to happen? More justice. Now, no, I have, to reta- I have to be the last one who does this. You started it, so I have to finish it kind of deal, right? That's where he's going. So then what I love here is it says he uh, struck them hip and thigh with a great bu- blow, excuse me, and he went down and stayed on the cleft of the rock of Edom. Now, I want you guys, I just want to point out something I thought was interesting. This, always, this book seems to really uh, portray Samson's great strength, and it just keeps kind of setting that up, right? It's kind of that final picture. And one of the interesting things here is that, that, that term, hip and thigh, right? Is that what it says? Make sure I get that right. Hip and thigh with a great blow was a wrestling term. So he, hand-to-hand, went to town on these guys and hit them with a great blow, I think it's important. Like, this was personal, right? This was something he, hand-to-hand with all of these guys and really got personal with them, which is very, like, I think it's key to, for us to see how Samson reacts, right? This is very barbaric. This is very, like, uh, not thought about. He just reacted, and he, with what he had right there in his hands, his, just his hands and his body, he destroys, like, destroys this group of people. So then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson to do as he did to us. So again, we now see that cycle. Now remember we said Samson is almost like a smaller picture of what the people of Israel have been doing, right? They do something, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, right? Because now that he's killed people, the Philistines now want retaliation for what's happened to their people. So now they want to come and get Samson. Now, it's interesting here. They went to the people of Judah, 
And uh, one, a couple of the studies I did this week where it's important that it talks about the men of Judah is that Samson was not part of the tribe of Judah. So this meant that the people, the Philistines, and who they were oppressing the Israelites were actually coming further into the territory than they'd ever come before. So this meant that the people of Judah, this is why they asked, whoa, why are you coming against us? What have we done? And they're like, well, we're coming after Samson because Samson's up in the hills over there. And so the people of Judah are not really liking Samson right now because they, he has brought trouble to them that they didn't previously have, right? They've been kind of like on their own little island here. They've kind of been isolated, like, hey, we're, we're fine. They're over there doing their thing. We're here doing ours, and that's okay. But now Samson gets them involved, and that's what they want you to see here. So then what happens? The 3,000, there are then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. So again, he's trying to self-justify, right? I'm justified that they did something first, I reacted, then they did something, I reacted again. That's why they're here. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. So Samson has some sort of like restraint here, right? He doesn't want to, like he sees the people of Judah as something along the realm of like his tribe, his family, right? He doesn't want to cause them harm. So we see some good coming out of Samson here. And they said, no. We will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Now, it's important for us to understand the writer of Judges. Some people think it was Samuel. We're not quite sure, though. Know that this was a foreshadow of what was happening in what we'll get to in chapter 16 when it says that they bound him with new ropes. Okay, and I'm going to let Daniel kind of like dive into that, the, uh, where that connection gets made. Uh, next week, but understand that this was meant to be a foreshadow of what happened. So they used new ropes on him and brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes on his arms became as flax as they caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. I mean, this must've been a crazy scene to see, right? This guy walking down, brand new ropes, right? All this stuff, he's being walked down. And then as soon as the Philistines start cheering and they start hooping and hollering because they got the guy that like caused them harm, what happens? These ropes like burn up and they become like liquid almost. And he just mm, rips through them, right? And then all of a sudden he's on his own, right? Then when he came to Lehi, the, uh, so then we're, or excuse me, uh, verse 15, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. So first of all, I want to like, before we even get to the fact of what he does with that, we have to understand that this is not the first time that we've seen Samson ruin his Nazarite vow by doing what? Touching something dead, right? So now he's ruining it again. So the spirit of the Lord comes on him and the spirit of the Lord comes on him. He's got this great gift. And what does he do? He like trashes it almost instantly. He grabs something dead and he touches it and he ruins it, but he still is able to strike down thousand men. Now, two things here. 
Like, I've wrestled with my little girls on the ground before, and after about 30 minutes, I'm tired. <laughs> a thousand men, it's a lot. And I was making the joke on Wednesday, this must have been a calcium-rich donkey, that a jawbone lasted that long <laughs> through a thousand men. Just an impressive feat when you think about it, right? Like, it's really easy for us to read through Bible stories and think about just numbers, and they're just numbers or whatever. A thousand men, right, with the jawbone of a donkey. If the Lord wasn't there working, I don't know what was going on. That's crazy. And then I think what's interesting here is then this is where we see Samson, I think, hit like his, what I would call his low point of this passage, because what does he do? He taunts them. Now, I'm going to go back to the story of Barak and Deborah. Many of you guys were here with us when we went over this. Barak and Deborah have this great battle, right? And then what gets written after their battle? There's a, second ver- or there's a whole second chapter that Nathan preached over that was a poem or like a song written about what happened. And it was beautiful because what did it do? It brought glory to God. It showed that God was with them. God was the driving factor there and like, that apart from him, nothing would have happened. And that was awesome because that's what they tried to paint. Even though some of the stuff went downhill, they tried to redeem it through that story, right? But what does Samson do here when he writes his own poetry about what happened? With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. What's missing? Yeah. God is missing. Now, was he truly there? Absolutely. But he's missing from Samson's retelling of this story. Now, I want to like point something out here. I'm going to like share a little tidbit, I guess. When you read this, I want you to understand that the same word for heap was actually the same word that they used for donkey. Now, I'm not going to say it here, but many of you guys know another word for donkey. He was mocking them. Donkeys upon donkeys, replace the word that you know. Okay, that's what he was doing here. He was like, I mean, this is bad. Not only did he just slaughter a thousand people on his own accord, he then taunts them and calls them essentially less than people. I mean, this is like, this is where Samson has gone to. And then I think it's really interesting, and this is the part that I just, I love 17 through 20, just like really hits in. As soon as he finished speaking, he threw the jawbone out of his hand and that place was called Ramath Lehi, right? What, okay, right? Like that's one of those passages, I always wonder about that. Like they always made sure to understand, like to, to tell you where this happened, right? So you could go see it or whatever it was, right? So they throw that in there, but then it goes to this. Soon as he was done speaking, right? So we're thinking about that. Gets done speaking, throws his bone away, great victory thing. What happens? And then he was very thirsty. And then we see something happen here that he has failed to do the entire story. The entire story. He has not done this. He called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? He does a couple things here. First thing he does is what does he do? Calls out to the Lord. Second thing he does, 
he credits the Lord for what has happened. It's by your great salvation, by the hand of your servant. All of a sudden, Samson is his servant, and he's giving credit to God. And then the, the third thing that he does is he finally shows that there is a difference between the people of God and people who are not of God. Because what word does he use? The hands of the uncircumcised. This is an important turning point for for this understanding of what Samson is doing. And this is where, again, we have those two varying things. Because there's one aspect where we could view this, and when you read that, if you read it with a certain tone, doesn't Samson kind of sound condescending towards God? Doesn't he? Like, if we read this the correct way, or, you know, like in a a way that we want to see that, you know, now you're going to let me die? Ooh. Choose your words wisely, because he might, you know? Like, we want to make sure, like, like that's, that's tough. But then there's that other varying side that we talked about that's over here that sees Samson a little bit better and says, finally, finally you got it. This whole series of events was brought up so that Samson was finally in line with what God was doing. He saw God, and then he finally gave God credit for the victory at the end. This is a good thing. It's recorded. It's recorded for us to see that Samson finally did that. Which way is the right way to look at that? I don't know. And I'm not going to pretend to stand up here and tell you, well, I think that it's better. Like, I don't know. But what I do know is that we get to see that it was God's hand that was controlling the whole thing. And as far as I'm concerned, that's all I need to know. And what we do see at the end here is that God hears his cry and it says, and God split open a hollow place that is at Lehi and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he was revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor and it is at Lehi today. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence for us to see that what happens. The first time that he gives any sort of credit to God, that he acknowledges God, that he does anything like that, what happens? He becomes a judge and he rules for 20 years. Now, it doesn't tell us that there was peace like it has in previous stories, but what we do see is that Samson finally embraces his role, what he was made, what he was created for to be this judge, and we get to see that he's finally embraced that, and when he finally gives credit to God, He's a judge for 20 years. And as the way it's written, that tells us that between this time and the story of Samson and Delilah, which comes next, he was, in, he was judging for 20 years. God gave him a period, a season where he was, you know, the man. And I think it's really interesting for us to see that. And that goes along with that split view, right? God heard his cry, helped him, saw him and wanted him to judge, so this whole thing was meant to put, paint Samson in a good light, or this was God having grace and mercy and giving somebody who didn't deserve it and all those things something. And now, do they kind of come back together at the end? Yeah, because both require the grace of God to be working there, to humble Samson or to work in spite of Samson. Both of these things are hap- could be happening. And so I want us to have an understanding that when we read through passages like this, sometimes it's not going to be clear. And that's okay. 
His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. <laughs> For a simpleton like me, that, that rings true a lot, right? So we say, great, William, now that you straddled that fence, where do we go from here? How do we answer these questions? Yeah, good question. What we're going to do is we're going to get into groups, and you guys talk about it, and then let me know what happens, okay? <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. That was the teacher in me was like, uh, how about you guys gather up, and then you guys tell me. We've been studying this long enough, 14 chapters. You guys should have a way to answer these questions, right? But no, that's okay. I'm going to try and dive into this the best way I can. So question one. Question one. What does this story teach us about who God is, his character, how he relates to his people? Well, I'm going to zero in on, I think, one thing in particular. Now, I could go with Daniel's piece as last week where God's plan is sovereign God can work in spite of us. He works all things for his good. So if things may look bad, God can still use them. How that works, we don't know. Don't know what that looks like for bad things to be used for good. But we see it in scripture and it, it works out great. God continues to use Samson's failures for his ultimate plan. That I could talk about how this should bring us great hope, Right? Because I don't know about you guys, but I've messed up. I've put my foot in my mouth multiple times. I mean, just yesterday, I had to apologize to my wife, put my foot in my mouth. Do it all the time. We wreak havoc on our lives and other people's lives because we are flawed individuals. But this story could show us that the grace of God surpasses those failures, right? And as we come to him, have faith in him, he will work. But there's something more that I think I want to get at here. I think that this story is a great reminder that God gives gifts to us to be useful for his glory and to be useful for the body. Okay, I'm going to say that again. It's a reminder to us that God gives gifts to us to be useful for his glory and to be useful for the body. So we need to be careful. So this is a Tim... I'm going to give you guys, I don't give many quotes, but I'm going to go Tim Keller right here. We need to be careful, though, not to think that just because we have gifts, that we have a self, or that we have self-justifying proof that we are fine spiritually. So I'm going to say that again, because I kind of started on that. We need to be careful, though, not to think that just because we have the gifts, that we have self-justifying proof that we are fine spiritually. Think about what Samson had. All the strength in the world. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. But what happened? He used those gifts for a self-serving cause, right? Whether we think it was out of good or out of bad, like the one thing we know is that it was driven by his need for justice for something that happened to him specifically. Not his people. And we see that happen because what happens? Who ends up having to like kind of pay for it? The people of Judah, right? Because somebody, they, they start having to pay the consequences of what Samson has tried to do on his own. So what I want to do is I want to look at a few different things here. So what are some of the gifts of the spirit that we read about in scripture? So if you are uh, somebody who wants to write down some things, you could write down Romans 12. In Romans 12, it talks about some gifts. Prophecy, service, teaching, 
exhortation, generosity, leading with zeal, acts of mercy. These are all gifts of the Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 12, utterances of wisdom, utterances of knowledge, faith, healing, works of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, various kinds of tongues, followed by interpretation of tongues. I want to point that out. Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. So what do we see? There is a wide range of gifts that God gives, correct? We can all agree on that. That's biblical. There's a wide range of gifts. But when we see those gifts, one thing I want to ask you guys, and I want to make sure we hear this, what are we using our gifts for? I'm going to put it to you this way. Are we using them to destroy fields and crops or are we using them to produce fruit? The gifts that we are giving, are we using them like Samson to destroy crops or are we using them to produce fruit? Well, let's go to my favorite book. Galatians. Galatians 5. If you have your Bible, go to Galatians 5, 16 with me real quick. Galatians 5, 16 paints a picture that I think is so fitting in this story. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, Samson. Impurity, Samson. Sensuality, Samson. Idolatry, eh, somewhere, Samson. Sorcery, enmity, Samson. Strife, Samson. Jealousy, Samson, fits of rage, rivalries, dissension, and division. Need I say, Samson. Are our gifts marked by that? But Paul gives us even more enviness, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You may have a gift, but if you're using it for those things, you are not a part of God's kingdom. A reality that we need to hear. That goes back to that warning. Just because you have the gifts, don't think and be foolish that God is there with you, right? That you, are, that you have him, that you are living in his kingdom because you have the gift of teaching, you might be the most dynamic teacher, but just because you're good at that does not mean God is overflowing out of your heart. Needless to say, look at some of the most prominent speakers in the modern generation. Terrible people. Hitler, dynamic speaker, brought crowds to flock to him. Terrible human being. Mussolini, same thing, dynamic speaker, terrible human being. These are gifts from God that he has blessed people with, but what are we using them for? Are we using them to burn down fields or are we using them to produce fruits? But the fruit of the spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. God freely gives his gifts. But are we using them for the kingdom? It's a good question for us to ask. Now, I know that's kind of jumping into part three, question three, but I really want to focus on this for question one. God gives gifts because he loves his people and he wants to see them flourish. But how are we choosing to use those gifts? Now, as we move into question two, how does this fit into the larger meta narrative? I want to highlight what I said I thought were just the best piece of this, where we see Samson diving down this road of action, reaction, action, reaction, right? That there was this kind of constant battle going on. But then we see that it comes to an ending point, and that ending point hits when he throws down that jawbone and he says that he's what? Thirsty, right? And God gives him, opens up the ground, opens up the hollow. And I think it's really interesting what it says here. Water came out from it and when he drank, the spirit or his spirit returned and he revived. So it like refreshed Samson for a time, right? Samson was like, I'm, I'm there. What I want us to do is I want us to turn to John 4. John 4. How does that paint a picture into what is going on in the, the Bible as a whole? Now, many of us hopefully have read through most of the scriptures. Hopefully you've read through them all, but if you haven't, you'll know that there are stories where God provides water for a lot of people, Moses, you know, hits the rock, strikes the rock, water comes out as people needed it. But this is where I wanted to go, John 4. How does this fit into the larger narrative? A woman from, I'm going to go uh, 4 verse 7. So we'll start at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Jesus probably had a softer tone than I just did there. I'm sorry. Uh, the Sarmatian woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings uh, with Samaritans. Sorry. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal 
life. So what do we see here? Samson's just such a micro picture of what we see in scriptures. And we see this, hopefully we see this connection here. That as Samson was doing things on his own, as he was acting out of his own might, as he was doing stuff, he was still left what? Thirsty. He was still without. And it wasn't until he cried out to God that his spirit returned to him. Jesus says the same thing when he talks to the Samaritan woman. I have the living water. With me, you will never go thirsty again. I'm going to roll this straight into point three because I don't, want to, I don't want to waste time because I think it's so important for us to hear. I'm going to leave point three super short. What's the exhortation or admonition? It's an exhortation. Call out to God. It's that simple. God has shown us over and over again in his word that those who cry out to them, he responds. When it says that God loves, he loves. And he wants to see us flourish with him. And God knows that the only way we can flourish is with him. That we have to look around and say, we can accomplish some big things on our own. We can. We see that. Samson defeated a thousand men. He wrestled a bunch of men before that. He ripped a lion open in the previous story. Even after not honoring his Nazarite vow, he still had strength. He did a lot of good things on his own, but when we get to the end of the story, he is still left parched. There's nothing left in the tank. I don't know about you guys, but I realize a lot of times in my life I get to that point. The tank is empty. And the only reason the tank is empty is because I stopped or I forgot to stop and get gas. I never called out to God. I never asked him to help me get through a day. When I'm dealing with 100 middle schoolers, never once did I stop and ask him to refill the tank. So for us as believers, those of you in this room that believe, it's a constant reminder to keep coming back to God. He is that never-ending well that is going to be flowing out of us, and it's there for us. We just have to stop and drink. Read, pray. All of these things are going to be good things to help replenish the tank. Now I'm going to go to the other side and say, if you haven't called to God, if your faith is not in him, You're tired. I know you are. You have to be. I I mean, I feel it after a day. If we've been running from God our entire lives, we are probably at the end of our rope going, what else has to be? Because there is nothing that is satisfying. Sex just leaves you wanting more afterwards and it doesn't actually fill in the thing. Alcohol just makes you numb for a couple minutes, but then you still have to wake up with your realities. 
Drugs will do the same thing. You can, you can ingest them however you want to, but at the end of the day, you are still left needing that again because it's not filling. We can do all these things, pornography, cheap thrills, to get us from one moment to the next to the next, but they're all gonna leave us dead at the end, parched with a dry mouth, needing the love of Christ in our lives. If I was a traditional Baptist, I'd probably call for an altar call right now, but I'm not that way. I'm not gonna do that because the thing is, is if God is pursuing you, you know it. Scripture tells us that no one pursues God, but he pursues them. If God is calling you, you know, like we used to have this thing, I was telling Daniel yesterday, I don't understand this. We'd say, you know, can you guys close your eyes? And if you haven't accepted Christ, raise your hand. No, I'm going to go the opposite. If you haven't accepted Jesus and you want to answer that call to have that eternal life, please come cartwheeling down this aisle because it is exciting. We want people to know that. That's awesome. Find rest, peace, joy, hope in Jesus and his living water that he freely offers to us. Like Samson, don't reject that calling. Don't push that away and say, well, I got these great things, so I'm going to rely on those. Because at the end of the day, you are going to be left needing Jesus. Come to him. We're going to sing a song that talks about how that, that, that living water is just more than we can picture, right? Deep and wide, right? How huge is that well that we get to draw from, that we get to find our strength in? Let's go ahead and pray.